What's up, everyone? Welcome to Desolation Radio with Dan and Nath. Hi, comrade. <laughs> Hello, comrades. Dobra da. Um, yeah, so we are, of course, Wales's uh, premier communist podcast, and we're delighted that so many of you reacted so positively to our to last week's episode, you know, part one of socialism for the Welsh people, and how many of you messaged us, like DM'd us on Twitter, and said, like, basically, more communism. So. Um, I had uh, a few people DM me on Facebook saying that uh, we're ready to try and turn Tim Wales into a Soviet state in um, struggle. A lot of, uh, I should say, prominent listeners as well. Um, Hugh Edwards messaged me and said... Um, uh, some that, of my money from the BBC will be used to set up a, a guerrilla unit. Yeah, he specifically said that he is up for forming Maoist cadres in <laughs> uh, the Carmarthenshire countryside. Um Michael Sheen also got involved and wanted to set up a, a sort of an urban uh, cell in Neath Talbot. So it's really, really encouraging. And so henceforth, we're going to scale down the talk about Wales, and it's mainly going to be about you know sort of going through the achievements of the Soviet Union, mm. which were absolutely <laughs> were just so many, yeah, just so many. Still a state as well. It didn't collapse. <laughs> um, so yeah, we basically um, today is part two of socialism for Welsh people by. The incredible Robert Griffiths and Gareth Miles. Um, so we're going to get into that, um, but first we're going to just briefly do our roundup of Wales this week. What's happened, Nate? Well, um, just before Parliament uh, wrapped up, they uh, granted Wales uh, finally the option to electrify all its lines. So now we're going to have a, a much quicker route between Cardiff and Swansea. It's going to happen, is it? It's definitely going to. <laughs> but wait, what's this? Breaking news. Um, that's not the case at all. So, nah. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So Wales uh, will forever be on a par for uh, rail infrastructure with Albania and where else was it? Moldova. Moldova. I think. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to Moldova in September, and I mean, I kind of not going to get shocked by the the rail, then are you. Well, I kind of resent this because I mean, people go to you know Welsh people sort of cling on to this idea that you know Wales is somehow an advanced nation when in reality it's just. You know, if you go to countries in Eastern Europe, um, which are you know meant to be, tech, you know, poor, less developed, like this, I mean, they're entirely comparable to Wales in terms of infrastructure. I mean, I said like you know, I guarantee when, you know, Moldova played Wales in Cardiff, I bet you had all the Moldovan fans walking around Cardiff and thinking, oh my god, this place is a shithole. Yeah. Um, and the, uh, sorry for swearing, by the way. Um, we may maybe you know trying to set up a Soviet state but we're still keeping the PG keep it polite it. keep it polite yeah absolutely um, so yeah so basically what's what what did, who was the transport minister basically said Chris Grayling yeah. he, he, didn't he he tried to like word it and said uh, uh, we're still going to deliver told like, the, the Western Mail a faster journey between the cities would be achieved without the needless disruption <laughs> of engineering works so he said a new fleet of trains would be on the line from the autumn with a hundred extra seats per train wow Lovely. Well, that's going to deal with a problem of overcrowding for sure. It is, but uh, also they're kind. You know, they they they're saving us the problem of. Yeah, I, I live near a rail uh, railway track, and I'm fed up of engineering works. Yeah, so uh, I just would rather get home a bit slower. But also, uh, did you know that Chris Graylin has also excitedly backed plans for a new railway station in Cardiff? Yeah, that's like it was a bad, probably a bad day to announce that. that. Uh, it was. That, that Cardiff's getting it and Swansea's not getting an electrification. Yeah. Um, Twenty five mil as well. So what's um I mean what's fascinating about this is that you've got Welsh Conservatives like Alan you know, Alan Cairns, like the Poison Dwarf, um, 
who's you know, he's actively like delighting in Wales being sort of deprived of all this stuff. I mean, it's someone said on Say Twitter, I can't remember who said, but anyway, someone said on Twitter, like, it's hard to believe, uh, it's hard to imagine rather, like, a Scottish Conservative member being so pleased at the fact that we're like, you know, that Scotland isn't getting anything. I mean, even like Conservatives, you know, with their sort of overarching belief in the. <laughs> what I did this uh, between finishing work and you coming over Nathan, I tried to look through um so ba- basically if you want to understand you know the the rail the sort of the the rail infrastructure in the UK is quite complex um network rail kind of runs all the infrastructure right um but it, so it's um so Scotland uh, has responsibility for rail infrastructure in Scotland so so capital investment things like that Scotland, for example, could, if they wanted to electrify the rail lines, they could just do it because they're responsible for that part of the track. Um, but when it came to the Silk Commission um, discussion on what should be devolved to Wales, apparently there was no cross-party consensus. That's like the thing that kept coming up in devolution of rail infrastructure was, you know, not devolved to Wales. So all that was devolved to Wales was like to award the franchise and just please God do not award it to. I mean, obviously, you know, the last episode was kind of like a good catalyst for sort of a, you know, a, social, a socialist revolution and sort of, I think people were listening to it and getting more and more like worked up with sort of revolutionary fervour. But what I really think will tip them over the edge is if uh, the Welsh government award the, the rail franchise to Arriva Trains Wales, I mean, you really got grounds for people could just go and absolutely postal. Like it's just. Can you imagine that was it? That's like how people politically engaged. Just but we did. I mean, our most popular tweet, I think, thus far is when we said that um, when the work experience kid um, who yeah. was in charge of the Twitter account. I mean, to be fair, he was provocative, but he was effective. Yeah. So the work experience ch- uh, child that comes in every so often to run our Twitter feed and uh, beef with people. Mm. Um, basically, I mean, sometimes said, just runs in and just does it and runs back out. Yeah. Like we, a little yeah. He <laughs> he basically said that. In an independent Wales, and I'm, I was reading between the lines in this pamphlet, which you know about the socialism for Welsh people, and I kind of got it that the, the authors agreed with this statement that the, one of the main, one of the foundational sort of uh, events that's going to happen in independent Wales. Obviously, you have like you know inauguration of me as uh, head and things like that. Yeah. But then one of the main things is that the the sh- the shareholders and directors of Arriva Trains Wales will be publicly executed in Central Square in Cardiff. Um, and then we had a nice poll. Mm. What was going to be the best way to kill them? And I think most people went for a huge catapult. Yeah, wasn't well, it? you know, kind of because uh, I, I guess with the independence argument as well, yeah. is it kind of looks back on Wales's history. So this is almost fitting. They'd have almost like a medieval type of edge to it. Absolutely, I, celebration I was, of the I history. I was fine with just putting them in, like hanging to them. <laughs> but, you know, no, I was appropriate. However, I will add that uh, patrons and people have contributed to our. Uh, new mic equipment will get first dibs at the... Oh, to kill them. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, that's the part of the, the deal. Of the we, couldn't, we couldn't say it like that on the website. Um, it's just implicit. It's, it, it, it is it's implicit. obvious, isn't it? Yeah. People know. People know now. Yeah. Um, all right, so Wales basically isn't going to get any infrastructure support. Um, no. And what's interesting is to see um, people sort of like uh, asking, like, you know, what's the Welsh government saying about it? And as ever, it's like, oh, this is terrible, like, tut tut from Carlin. Oh, no. Oh, no, please. Um, and it's just, I mean, if, if this doesn't, if this doesn't, like, sort of tip you over the edge and sort of, like, getting angry and, like, sort of maybe adopting a more confrontational uh, tone towards, you know, 
Westminster absolutely nothing will and, and it just reinforces that we're not going to get anything because we're politically docile so why on earth would you sort of Wales doesn't kick up a fuss so therefore you know why on earth would you think alright well actually we need to devolve rail infrastructure we do need to actually give them rail electrification because that might pacify them they just think we're complete mugs Take anyway. some trains off us and just be like, oh, just replace all the trains in Wales with those, uh, you know, those du- handcarts. Du- Duplo. Yeah, you know, <laughs> All the ones in the Wild West. Yeah, you just yeah. have to, yeah. The pump them. I mean, they'll probably turn up on time, to be fair. <laughs> um, and, have more, and have more space. And I bet they don't have re- a revenue protection team that uh, tries to take money off you if you uh, and kicks off if you haven't got a ticket by the time you boarded the train, even though you get on at... Um, unmanned platforms where's yeah. your ticket well the platform isn't manned well you know you should have bought it anyway uh, just do these, one like these handcarts though i assure <laughs> will have a, a refreshments trolley you're in what well, just following them don't yeah pretty track. much yeah good idea man yeah well um that's why we're here isn't it all right everyone please turn right. to page 17 of the pamphlet so we'll pick up where we left off last time yeah so get, get on to the the actual sort of topic at hand um Eventually. Basically, what we did last time, we looked at the, what the problems were, didn't we? We looked at you know sort of Rob, Rob and Gareth's you know brilliant Marxist analysis of the you know the problems we, that have happened in Wales you know in in sort of the seventies, and then um, what we're going to talk about in this episode, are basically the solutions they propose, which is like it, again, it's really prescient given that we really should be having these conversations today. So um, it's it's one of those things you can't tell if the the pamphlet is really kind of um, prophetic in what I'm saying or just Wales hasn't moved on really in four years <laughs> nothing happened no. um, I mean I'm assuming that everyone else you know like me I've started sort of carrying the pamphlet around essentially like a bible you know like in my breast pocket um, just waving it around at people I've been knocking on doors and yeah can I ask would you like to talk to today about overthrowing the state <laughs> um, Marx loves you oh it's those communists again okay Right, so page 17, the working class and independence. As we've seen, this is a good place to start back off. As we have seen, in the last century, the leaders of Welsh society, both the nonconformist and sort of the labourist, did not wish to lead Wales towards self-government. And Gareth and uh, uh, Rob, right, um, I'm sort of on first name terms now. Yeah. Um, for the last 10 yeah, years... Robo. For the last 10 years or so, an increasing number of the present-day heirs of that class, teachers, lecturers, students, lawyers, administrators and broadcasters, have willed that end, i.e. self-government, but they are neither numerous enough or sufficiently strong economically to achieve that aim. And this is important now, um, because it informs everything else that... You, every, all the strategy that the pamphlet then advises, and it's advice that everyone in Wales has to heed, anyone who, who wants independence in Wales... The only class that can carry through the task of establishing a Welsh state is the working class. But would Welsh self-government, and this is the key question, would Welsh self-government, independence, or to use the current bogey word of separation, be in the national interest of workers, besides being a matter of their self-respect as Welsh people, because there is an issue of self-respect? I think that's a really big question, isn't it? Because uh, I feel uh, that the conversation on independence isn't really something that's led by the working class. Well, this is what we're going to... So we're going to delve into it. Absolutely. And and look at it. So, basically, if the working class isn't placed at the centre of uh, the campaign for Welsh independence, then there's absolutely no prospect of self-government, just as there is little chance of a distinct Welsh nationality surviving far into the next century. So, we're referencing this pamphlet. The pamphlet itself references 
specifically Welsh and Marxist analysis of British capitalism, which was written by William Rees, another good communist, in a 1950 discussion paper, The Problem of Welsh Nationality and the Communist Solution. If anyone has a link to this, please send it to me because I haven't been able to find it. Um, so, what they talk about then is that why it's like a, a, another summary of why Wales has been so badly affected by capitalist development. And we'll just go through this now. So, this is what we've sort of talked about. We, I mean, it, if you have only just started listening to us because, you know, we think we're, we're now a communist podcast. We are now. Um, uh, we're going to sort of be next week. Then listen um, to our previous podcast, especially one by Calvin Jones, where he talks about Wales's uh, lack of gulags. Wales's historic economic development and why it explains why Wales is so poor today. So, in the first, you know, so why why is Wales poor? Let's just sum this up. In the first place, it's because the main communication systems have been built, and this is you know, reading from the pamphlet, obviously, um, not to connect Welsh industrial areas with each other, but to connect them with neighbouring English industrial areas and with London. So basically, that's why the northwest and north of Wales is is integrated in a uh, to the northwest of England, Liverpool and that's why and yeah, Liverpool, Manchester, Chester, and that's why. Uh, South Wales is connected to Bristol and London and they're not connected to each other because those are the two distinct industrial regions which emerge, emerge because, as we said in the previous episode, because there wasn't a national bourgeoisie that viewed Wales as a discrete holistic entity, they just saw Wales as, you know, wait. So there was no imperative to develop these north and south links because it just didn't need to we haven't got a really good rail line between the north and south and this is what George and even if we did it wouldn't be electrified anyway, <laughs> so it's why bother existing but I mean we, I'm sure we've talked about this in other episodes because I mean if you spend much time with me I'll I get at a garden party or a dinner party or not that I go to those things but you know there's a good chance I'll start talking about the railway yeah. <laughs> um, I love steam trains I love railways but George Monbiot the Guardian writer has pointed this out um, and it's an amazing article he basically just says if you look at the Welsh railway system, it's clearly, you know, it goes from west to east. There's no north. The infrastructure is so bad and it's a legacy of colonialism because Wales was basically neglected and it, because it, it wasn't treated as a, an independent, it wasn't thought of as a discrete entity. But that's less true for many areas, isn't it? It's only they get built up if they're economically um, beneficial to, to the state. Yeah. So, but yeah, so basically from a Welsh standpoint, how Wales is a, economy and infrastructure developed is absolutely terrible but from the point of view of the British state it makes perfect sense yeah. um, so yeah so what they say is the result um, the result of this neglect has been the creation of what can only appear from a Welsh standpoint as an ir- irrational economic structure consisting of separate industrial areas in North and South Wales both dependent on more powerful neighbouring areas both unconnected with each other and largely unconnected with their own surrounding rural areas so the second reason Wales is poor um, and this is what Calvin said, it's because the industrial development in South and North East Wales have been overwhelmingly and almost exclusively based on a few specialised narrow industries, notably the heavy extractive industries, coal, iron and steel. So again, this makes great sense from the point of the British state from British capitalists. Well, we'll just, you know, certain areas have specific functions in the sort of mosaic, the patchwork of capitalist development within a country, certain areas specialise in different parts of the production point. Um, So basically, you know, so... Again, so that it makes sense that Wales just produces raw materials. I was uh, thinking about perhaps a bit of a detour, but like uh, in terms of how uh, maybe South Wales identifies itself, you know, the the kind of dye smith coal miner thing. 
basically just because mining fetishism. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, just because at a certain resource on it, you like kind of build your whole identity. Around of course, but like, that's just like you know, a random identity, is isn't it? Well, yeah, but I mean, there's certainly something to be said about um, you know, ooh, little whales at the heart of the empire were not yeah. brilliant. Um, so yeah, so um, from a specifically Welsh point of view, this economic structure is entirely indefensible. Um, and as Calvin said, there is, and I say in the pamphlet, the result of this narrow specialisation is that whenever those industries undergo structural changes, um, as they did in the 80s and so after this pamphlet was written, um, there are no alternative industries in Wales to absorb the displaced labour. So that's why when there's like an economic slump, so you know the steel industry, and because Wales is like dependent on like steel, for example, in Talbot, things like that, uh, and as it was dependent on South Wales, was kind of dependent on mining throughout much of the 20th century. When these industries fail, there's nothing else there. So that's why it's sort of these superiority crises of capitalism disproportionately affect Wales far worse than more developed parts of the UK, where there are different types of industries sort of to absorb the sort of labour that gets displaced. Um, then they go on to... And it's, these are some awesome bits of writing here. So they go on to sort of characterise... Wales's relationship to the British state. And we've done this in previous um, podcasts, but it's worth doing it again. Wales is a colony because three quarters of its private industry is owned from outside and all of its public sector is controlled from outside. One fifth of Welsh land is either a military playground or is underwater for the benefit of English conurbations and for the salvation of undrowned English valleys. <laughs> valleys. 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 Uh, Cultural hegemony is imposed by an English and largely anti-Welsh press and by the British nationalist broadcaster machine, i.e. the BBC. Um, and Wales lives under a governmental and education system which is overwhelmingly English in language and entirely British in sentiment. Wales is an internal colony because, as individual Britons, the Welsh possess the same political and civil rights as any other inhabitants of Britain. As a nation, however, we are recognised only in a token fashion e.g. our national university, as a harmless sop to our national identity, also our sports teams, or as a matter of administrative convenience, e.g. the Welsh office. Welsh speakers do not enjoy full civil rights for as long as they insist on using, seeing and hearing their own language as well as English. So, obviously, that you know, sort of harks back to, well, brings us back to current day debates, you know, the, the English language press, and in Wales as well, is sort of hammering the Welsh language again. And, you know, if the Welsh are truly considered a fully fully paid up, shall we say, a fully important member of the UK, I doubt you'd have be having these attacks on minority language. Um, so anyway, they say, for as long as they're imprisoned in this internal colony, the Welsh people will suffer higher unemployment, poorer housing, lower living standards, shorter life expectancy than most regions of Brit most regions of Britain. Only a reorientation of the Welsh economy under the control of workers and their communities can offer the opportunity of ending these inequalities. Such a restructuring of the economy will never be attempted by the British British state, which is just what we've been talking about. Rail, you know, there's no impetus, there's no need for to develop the Welsh economy, you know, and and it never will be under under Westminster rule. I mean, yeah, Wales, uh, Wales Online, our friends at Wales Online, uh, while running the story about how uh, between Swansea and Cardiff we won't get. Um, you know, an electrified line, and the same kind of like, oh, you can click on another article. What does it say? Oh, how's how quick is the like the new line going to be between like Cardiff and London? You're like, oh, cool. Oh, like all well, the promotion pieces. Ooh, like, wow. <laughs> um, Ooh. Uh, okay, so yeah, so 
it only makes so developing a Welsh economy only makes uh, sense in a Welsh state. Furthermore, of course, the only Welsh state capable of carrying it out would be one in control of the country's economy and resources, a socialist state. So, I mean, this is a caveat, you know, it goes without saying, obviously Wales can't escape the effects of international capitalist crisis, and nor can Wales hope to flourish as an oasis of socialism in a desert of capitalism. And by saying this, all you can hear already is people go, oh, you want to turn Wales into Cuba, you want to turn Wales into Albania. Well, you know. Not really. But, you know, Cuba has a higher literacy rate than Wales. You know, Cuba supplies doctors to, you know, the rest of the world. Cuba has abolished, um, Cuba. I think it's abolished... AIDS is it? No, but it, you know the, the, the list of Cuba, achievements. Cuba has Cuba. a one-state media as well, so like let's not fetishize the Cuban state. No, but at least they've got a media. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, Give it that. Okay, so basically, he said a Welsh state would have the protection of Wales as a priority, and let I mean, let's just think about what's just happened in in the rail. I mean, let's bring it back to sort of more tangible examples let's get before it back we on go. Tracks. Um, this, whatever you think about, whether you think independence is a stupid idea, uh, like it or not, stuff like this, you know, you would be able to have rail electrification, you would be able to have improvements in infrastructure in it, you know, if Wales was independent, you wouldn't have to go begging people like, uh, what's his face, uh, Grayling, Chris Theresa May, people who have absolutely no interest in seeing Wales thrive. Um, and you also wouldn't have to put up with a frankly, it's pretty nauseating, it's embarrassing, it's sort of cap in hand demeaning at like demeaning sort of state of affairs where like Carwin Jones just sort of like goes and sort of moans and cries about it and then just sort of begs to get more money and um but all, all that wouldn't happen because you'd be an, an like a gr- a grown up adult country who'd say right we're going to do this we don't have to because you're acting you know because you it's you would do it because you're obviously going to act in the in the interest of developing your own infrastructure if uh, anyway um okay oh yeah this is interesting we cannot afford to wait Without self-government, the Welsh people remain in the grip of an alien state, subject to instant hiring and firing by outside bosses, wandering in search of jobs in the more prosperous prosperous regions. Um, you know, so they've written this in 1979, and they've talked about you know how poor Wales is. I mean, has, have things really changed? You know, in like the 30 years hence. Um, not huge. I mean, Wales is you know West Wales and the Valleys are still the right. poorest part of the of Northern Europe. You know, like these things haven't changed. Newport is the poorest city in Europe. Is it? Yeah. Um, well, exactly. There you go. So I mean, there's. Um, all right. So we're going to talk a little bit now about. Um, I know. So this is the, this is the Kinnock. We we. Oh, the the other reason I think people liked it because we spent a lot of time sort of slating Neil Kinnock. Um, what are we going to do now? Uh, <laughs> uh, oh yeah. So turn out to page twenty one, please, children. Um, the encroaching corporate state, and this again emphasizes kind of like the urgency, um, almost like the revolutionary moment or junction, you know, sort of almost they're basically saying we're at a crossroads in society, really, and this is why it's important. And this part is like quite scary because post, you know, so many of these things have sort of come to pass. Um, but I would also suggest that we're living in a, a similar revolutionary moment, a, a period of crisis of the state at the moment. And we have to sort of pick a direction and pick a side. Um, and what happened, sadly, after this was written, is that you know Wales went the wrong way, basically, and things just got really, really dark under Thatcherism. Um, okay, so another reason for Wales breaking away from the British state is the feasible danger of reactionary totalitarianism taking over in Britain, as a result of the, uh, uh, as a result of the increasing crises 
and sharpening contradictions of domestic capitalism. As I just said, that did actually come to pass with the rise of Thatcherism, sadly, which completely screwed Wales and, you know, can't say we weren't warned because here it is. Um, this is not an attempt at scaremongering. All the necessary ingredients are in the pot and come into the boil. So we list them. Um, the low productivity of the British capitalist system and its inability to compete successfully without its competitors, Japan, Germany, France and the USA. The dangerous contradiction between the working class and the capitalist class. The former in a position of immense power industrially, but politically helpless and lacking in leadership. The latter, although its economic system is tottering on the brink of disaster, will maintain a very firm hold on the reins of political and administrative power and on its ability to influence the thoughts and feelings of the population through the press, the mass media and the educational system. That's kind of like a... It's cultural hegemony, isn't it? And it's kind of like a generic, that's what happens in times of capitalist crisis, you know? Mm -hmm. um, C. The support of large sections of the petty bourgeoisie, small traders, farmers, shop owners and many workers for the tireless drive of the capitalists to weaken the economic industrial power of the working class by bringing the unions to heel. Um, that right there is actually the kernel of fascism, and I'll go back to that in a little bit. D, I mean, again, this is, you know, think about where we are now. Yeah. Nostalgia for the empire and shame at the humiliation of their country, strengthening the appeal of extreme British patriotism among members of all classes. This tendency receiving the enthusiastic support of the mass media and right-wing politicians. I, I don't know about you, Dan, but are you a member of Pretend, Debate and Argue? No, I'm not. It's really funny. So had this one guy uh, posting about how great Britain was during World War Two, and uh, Germany best remember this now as we come out to EU negotiations. As basically like you know, oh, and nothing's changed. And threatening to sort of bomb yeah, Spain but... over Gibraltar. That was like the official government policy within like five minutes of taking over. Yeah, so so that sort of. Th I mean, yeah, that militaristic sort of mental, uh, lunatic patriot patriot theme just courses through British society, doesn't yeah. it? I don't care if I like you know Boris is stranded on France. I'm gonna get my dinghy and save him. <laughs> I think Chris Nolan will make a movie about me. Oh man, there's by the way, there's people at Dunkirk. Like I would, you know, it's like a Larry David said about um, if they had answering machines in Wild West from the rounding of a posse, everyone <laughs> just be screening. So hey, what you do? Like guys comes up your road with like a dinghy. And he's like, fancy coming over to Dunkirk? To what? What? Mm -hmm. <laughs> just gonna, you know, just sail onto a beach, getting strafed by, uh, you Tom know, Hardy. by Stukas and uh, you know Messerschmitts, and I'm just gonna t try to just pile Tom Hardy and uh, just gonna pile loads of uh, British uh, soldiers into my dinghy and just uh, row back. Hey, that's that's the British. That's the British way, though. Do you fancy it? What, what yeah. are you up to? And you're like, oh, uh, so you're oh I would, I really would, but I've got, so, so <laughs> I've got this thing tomorrow. <laughs> In the but what really happened was uh, Britain prevailed. Uh, owner of a local news agent on the seafront, he grabbed all his newspapers and with his son, he turned them all into paper boats, sailed them across the channel, brought a hundred thousand people back. Is that the M Night Shalomai? No, they have, but that's in that's in Christopher Nolan. Nice man. Harry Styles plays one of their uh, one of the newspapers. <laughs> um, all right, E. The radicalism of the right succeeding among the workers because of the ineffectiveness of the left. Well, which is that with the UK stuff, isn't it? Yeah. Um, all these things we've covered um, in previous episodes. Convenient scapegoats at hand promote British national unity, e.g. the common market, coloured immigrants, and the separatists of Wales and Scotland, or the Welsh language now, uh, or the SNP, which is what was sort of hammered during uh, Miliband's tenure, wasn't it? Um, a general desire for order and social stability and a return to traditional values and another cornerstone of creeping fascism. The plausible, although fraudulent, case being presented by state bureaucrats and other capitalist interests 
for introducing fast breeder nuclear reactors, the plutonium state, additional curbs on trade unions, and a much larger police and military presence. Northwest Wales is a prime site for nuclear reactors. And so the last two are about sort of securitization and the militarization of the state, which again all came to pass. The state's use of Ulster as a training ground for new techniques and intelligence gathering, riot control, military operations against civilians, police army cooperation, and other methods of suppression. Again, jump the shark a bit there, I think. But you know, it's completely yeah, so completely bang on. You know, you know, sort of Thatcher really accelerating the role of the British state in in Northern Ireland, and, and they're really shrewdly drawing attention to the strategic role of Northern Ireland within the British state, and one of it is as a training ground for the British military. Mm. And if you look at, do you remember when you know, the UK invaded uh, Iraq? Um, you know, do, do you remember that? Like, it was kind of a big deal. Yeah. Um, I, was, I signed up, didn't I? And, um, but you know, one of the things when they said, um, our brave boys are patrolling in Baza and they don't wear helmets because we've learned all this stuff on counterinsurgency in Northern Ireland. So there's a an advertising sort of use of Northern Ireland We've trained in Northern Ireland. We've got all this thing. Nice like, little testing ground, isn't it? Yeah, and as it happened, I mean, they actually sent, like, they gave them, the troops snatch Land Rovers, which weren't, like, IED proof, and they got sort of shot to pieces because they didn't have enough body armour. And within, like, a couple of days, it was like, oh, actually, lads, you might want to take your berries off and put your helmets back on because yeah. the locals are throwing bricks, just like they did in Northern Ireland. Um, Still okay. probably Yeah, all right. So these what they're saying is basically um, what was happening in the late 70s in the UK, at the peak of sort of the industrial crisis, um, with sort of Thatcher's, Thatcherism around the corner, they said that, you know, this is the foundations of a corporate state, fascism with a human face. Um, and so many things they got right. I mean, it's quite scary, you know, like, you know, the sort of um, use, you know, increasing interference by the armed forces in industrial disputes and security operations. And we now know that, you know, after Thatcher, after Thatcher deemed the, the National Union mine workers as the enemy within. We know the MI5 were involved in sort of tapping phones, surveilling miners, planting evidence. You know the police uh, troops. You know being shipped in to beat up striking miners. Churchill as well, obviously before this pamphlet was written, sending in the army to break up striking miners. Absolutely. Um, and what he said. I mean, and what we. I mean, the the parallels with post Brexit Britain. Uh, quite clear aren't they you know you've got people calling for law and order you've got the return of this um insane insane british jingoism um you've got the increasing militarization of the police you've got the snoopers charter you've got the government allowed to basically go through your internet search history um um but in you know but in a bad way just just do a you know google safe search and then um so Again, quite quite sort of scary because, I mean, you can see how you can see the parallels. Um, so they say the main reason why it's unlikely that socialism will be established in Britain without a period of violence and reaction, um, and possibly civil war and fascist repression, is that the workers of the UK do not have a revolutionary party within the, with the vision, the will, the determination, and the boldness to snatch the reins of the British state from the hands of the ruling class if the opportunity arises. So we can do a separate episode on you know, Corbyn and the limits of parliamentary socialism and what will happen, you know, what would happen, let's say, if you got into power. Um, But they allude to it here. Once such a party had gained power, so let's say Corbyn gains power, it would have to act repressively against the leaders of the old order, the great industrialists and the chief capitalists, the most reactionary politicians, press, mass media and civil service chiefs, and the highest officers of the armed forces and the police. 
If it does not do that, inevitable reaction would follow under the leadership of these gentlemen, smashing the labour movement and every other progressive movement, and imprisoning, torturing and murdering thousands of workers and their supporters. Did you uh, ever watch or read Chris Mullins' A Very British Coup? No. So, um, in it, you got this... Uh, um, like ex mine worker, union worker, ended up uh, running as an MP, and then he becomes uh, prime minister, and then you know, all of a sudden, like all these institutions move against him. You know, within Britain, outside of Britain, because um, you know he's like, I'm gonna get rid of the, all the military bases. I'm a working class lad. Yeah. <clears throat> and then America, like, yeah, well, we're not gonna trade with you. And then so you know, like, I guess yeah. that's the the problem of. of well, when um. I can't, I'm sure it was when Corbyn uh, first got elected. There was um, a senior, a senior British military officer, basically sort of advocated the army sort of intervening at some stage if he got elected. Yeah. Um, and this is what they say: they to say fire Trident on uh, North Islington. Well. <laughs> they say our soldiers and policemen will never do such dreadful things. You might say that's exactly what the late Salvador Allende used to say. You know, referring to sort of the, the coup in Chile, where previously Chile was a very stable country, and then the socialists. Dr. Allende gets in and then he gets assassinated. You know, the military general Pinochet gets t- takes over with the help of the CIA. I can't the remember US. who was friends with Pinochet. Uh, that, 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 oh, Thatcher? Yeah, it? something like that. Um, Loved his free free market uh, economy of rounding people up into stadiums and executing them. And uh, with the help of the complicity of the Chicago School of uh, Economists, you know, academic advisors who go down there and say, hey, you know, all these sort of mines and natural resources, you want to completely privatised those and sort of yeah. round up all the trade unionists. Nice nice guys. And then they go back to their little university in uh, in Chicago. Um and think I wonder what I wonder what happened. Oh you know, uh, my uh, my stock prices on yeah, uh, yeah. Bray Minerals just gone up. Um so one of the interesting things, I mean again this is kind of a a digression. Not like us but um <laughs> we're always on point. Um one of the things that the Welsh Socialist Republic movement did was draw attention to, you know, what was happening in Northern Ireland. And Northern Ireland is a real blind spot amongst the British left. I mean you can see when they talk about the Good Friday Agreement now, no, no one has a clue any about Northern Ireland or devolution in Ireland or, or the British state's involvement in Ireland or just anything at all outside sort of what's happening in England really. Um But yeah, I mean when people think about you know, when people talk about oh British bobbies, you know, um Ruling by consent, you know, our British troops. And then it's like, you know, we just just over the water, you know, British troops are opening fire on civilians. You know, they're executing people. They're, they're beat, you know, the people are getting murdered in custody and, and by the police. Um, so it's that, that's what I mean. Gramsci always said that, you know, a um, little bit of pretentious theory now, but hegemony, when we talk about hegemony, people always think of hegemony and like, you know, as being ruled through consent. But what Gramsci did, he used um, the metaphor of a centaur, which is like half man, half horse. Um, Just like you and I. <laughs> from a horse to a down. Um, but he used the metaphor of a, the centaur, half man, half horse, to say that there's a dialectical relationship within between force and consent within hegemony. So all that means is, yes, the state, especially advanced liberal ones like the British state, will always try to rule through consent, sue through peaceful strategies but what people forget is that it's always ultimately underpinned by force and what you see in the British state is that that, the role of force and violence really only manifests itself in Northern Ireland almost outside out of mind Mm. but you know so people in 
you know the labor movement are doing you know the labor party are doing that stuff in northern ireland you know yeah. interning people um but it's, then, it's like you know that like i guess so oh what a handsome man oh he's half horse <laughs> if, if you were to look i think yeah so Gramsci didn't talk about that bit but no i mean in terms of just like not all what you see is what you get oh yeah no no not like uh complimenting like he's at the barn and he can't you put your hand in his pint and he drops it because he's got hooves yeah and then you realize i'm gonna walk away from this guy um yeah. this mythical being it, all right so so basically they say and this is again just can i go back to the center and say i was uh in university uh, no i know i didn't go to university wasn't it? i was in college and there was a trip to like uh a museum or something and somebody earnestly asked if uh, centaurs and mermaids and such were offshoots of human evolution. <laughs> of course they were. Yeah. Idiot. <laughs> yeah. Uh, like, what do you need to ask? Uh, all right. When the foundations of a capitalist state are rocking, don't, don't go knocking. <laughs> <laughs> That's the messaging on your bedroom door. Yeah. On uh, there was the message on uh, Marx's door, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, right. Because <laughs> my wife's died. <laughs> When the foundations of a capitalist state are rocking, there are only two possibilities. A bourgeois dictatorship, that is to say fascism, um, reinforcing these foundations with the bodies and blood of the workers, or a dictatorship of the proletariat, leading society as a whole towards socialism. Uh, point of uh, point of interest, point of reference. Um, just to clarify, when people say dictatorship of the proletariat, that just means the working class are in charge of society. It means that, you know... It doesn't mean an actual dictatorship. Just, I mean, that's it's just the, the language that was used, basically. Uh, didn't Bakunin have uh, a bit of a disagreement with Marx over that? He did. Uh, as, as Bakunin said that although they are working class, they transcend their position as soon as they become in power and are no longer the working class. Yeah, they become so... Uh, they had a bit of a spat, didn't they, old Bakunin and Marx? You're, um, you're basically showing all... Well, uh, making the listeners aware of the... The splits that exist within mm. Desolation Radio between the liber- left libertarian, libertarian socialist wing, this is our first international, and the, uh, isn't it? And the Soviet wing, i.e., me. Yeah. Um, no, I mean it's interesting, isn't it? Because I mean, I think, um, again, I sort of politically, our journeys are kind of the same, and Gaths and Roberts have, have apparently sort of taken almost the same path. And I was started out thinking Labour are the good guys. Um, and then obviously you realise very quickly that that's definitely not the case. And then it's like, okay, I'm attracted to Plaid definitely because mm. there are some radical people in Plaid. And then, oh, no, they're not. And mm. there's a party for sort of rich Welsh speakers, essentially. Um, and then it just sort of became obsessed with the Soviet Union. <laughs> um, um, the thing is, you, just, you, were like, you know the Soviet Union's really bad, like wouldn't want to live under it. It was like, ah, oh, they had really good aesthetics, didn't they? Yeah, just became obsessed with it, obsessed with sort of Stalin's hair. Yeah. Um, when he was younger, um, I think everyone is, to be honest. And then, but then, you know, eventually, sort of, you've come out the other side and to anarchism, which is where you know I, I was joking about this being a communist podcast. It's, it's clearly an anarchist podcast mm. um, because of obviously because of the the problems which went on in a in the Soviet Union and the and the sort of bureaucracy and oppression which. But you stated as well, like you know, what you're going to have is just a centralized and very like controlled state, and that's exactly what happened. But we would. You know, we obviously we wouldn't let that happen in Wales. So this is an interesting debate that we want. Just call in, yeah. um, and if it's meant to be, you know, you can work out our numbers. Like you just guess them, yeah, pretty <laughs> and much. And they will take your call when you work it out. <laughs> um, okay, so this is interesting. They say that we, be- so they basically say why 
they think independence and sort of a radical movement in Wales is more likely to take off than it is in other parts of the UK. We believe that the ground is more fertile in Wales for revolutionary socialist politics than in many other parts of Britain, provided the national dimension is appreciated and applied properly. The stronger class consciousness here, the absence of a native employer class, the distinct popular culture and the separate, often heroic history, all these give the national question in Wales a progressive bias. Welsh, national, Welsh nationality clarifies and emphasises the class basis of society, inequality, the exploitation of labour, the siphoning away of profits and the nature of the British state. Socialists should employ it to heighten class consciousness and to unite much of the Welsh nation behind the socialist, anti-British working class of the future. Also, the forces hostile to progressive or socialist government of Wales would be more easily identifiable because they would emanate largely from outside. This, lacked, this last factor confirms the necessity of working with socialists in England, Scotland, Ireland and Western Europe generally. And interestingly, the Welsh Republican Socialist Movement did forge very strong links with Ireland in particular, the Irish Republican Socialist Party. Um, so in the unlikely event of British socialism, i.e. Labourism, triumphing without any separate Welsh dimension, we fear that both Wales and socialism would be the poorer culturally and economically. So we can look back at you know on this in more depth when we do our live show with Gareth and Robert, which I'll plug later. Mm. But it's interesting to consider this now, you know, to what extent, I mean, obviously back in the 70s, Wales did have a distinct, probably more of a distinct working class culture. Um, but, you know, 30 years later, that's... Yeah, yeah um, I did highlight know. that about the stronger class consciousness. And then, as we said before on one of our early episodes, that because uh, the media consumed by uh, Welsh people is British, then, you know, as I was saying, like Gramsci, uh, you get absorbed and uh, inadvertently a member of the British state. Um, and yeah, so I mean... Distinct popular culture. Uh, yeah, I think that kind of fell down a bit, didn't it? Um, yeah, I mean, there are there are elements, I mean, obviously... All those Welsh Marvel movies we've got. But, the, but, you know, but this is probably the, what, the only section of the... The pamphlet, I think, which maybe doesn't hold up historically, but because oh yeah, I mean, it's written forty years ago, like criticizing it, it's picking up low you know, because the um, the sort of distinct social bases of Wales, as in the distinct close knit um, communities that are based around heavy industry, which I guess is what they're talking about, was the sort of cornerstone of this distinct working class culture. They've largely been destroyed, um, but you know, nonetheless, you know, Wales does have. A massive amount of you know precariously employed, um, unemployed you know or unemployed or you know the lumpen proletariat for want of a better word, um, and you know they have revolution potential. But again, we'll, we'll talk about that later, right? So, um, or not at all. Um, um, anything we don't talk about now, um, we will pick up at a uh, you know remind us. It's Schrodinger's conversation. <laughs> it only happens until it's observed. Um, yeah. Okay. So on to the what the what is to be done section twenty three. The Socialist Road for Wales. How-to manual. Yeah. The late J. Roos Williams, a patriotic Welshman and a leading member of the Communist Party, said many years ago, Wales's misfortune is that the struggle for national freedom and the struggle for economic and social justice should have been separated for the... Um, should, oh, i start again. We'll scratch that, shall we? Um, Wales's misfortune is that the struggle for national freedom and the struggle for economic and social justice have been separated for the last 50 years and more. As a result... Both sides have only won a crumb or two here and there. Very little will come of our efforts as socialists or nationalists unless we manage to unite both struggles. When we manage to harness together the two most important dynamic forces in the life of the nation, socialism and nationalism, the desire for freedom and the desire for a complete society, we will see some astounding changes. 
So they say many more nationalists will support these words today than when they were spoken some 15 years ago, and you know, and when the words about the words were spoken 30 years ago in the pamphlet. Um, and so, and they say, and in all probability, so would many of the communists. Um, and to both of these groups may be added an increasing number of disillusioned ex-members of the Labour Party. Um, so you say it's easy to criticise, true, and it's fun as well. Yeah. Um, but can a Welsh left, new left, offer a strategy which will be more effective and more practical means of promoting socialism in their country and its neighbours? And this is the interesting question to ask. Let's say Corbynism triumphs, and let's say, you know, you have to make the argument if you are interested in Welsh independence, how is Welsh independence, and how would Welsh independence serve the people of Wales better than a Corbyn-run uh, British state. Yeah, or an authentic socialist British state. Yeah, mm. so this is uh, what we're going to talk about. So a separate Welsh state. This is the this, this is the recipe for success, basically. Socialists, Three cups of sugar. <laughs> socialists must, must make a degree of separate Welsh statehood an essential objective over the, last, over the next decade. Welsh nationality, with a folk culture and radical politics that infuse and define it, face the direst threat to its existence. Welsh self-government would loose the grip of British imperialism on one part of its territory, would weaken the influence of imperially derived attitudes on the working class in England, as well as in Wales, creating conditions in Wales favourable to progressive political developments. Um, just going to talk about this briefly. This is a really interesting argument, um, and it's the most. there's an amazing pamphlet in the Irish Marxist Review by Keir McEachney, who is a Scottish uh, socialist. I think he's actually a member of the SWP. Um, but I saw him speak in Marxism Festival in London. It was amazing. And and um, just like Marx, so Marx basically said all the way back that the island was the key to the British Revolution. So Marx used to just, and Engels used to be basically say, what the hell is wrong with the British workers? Why are they so chauvinistic? Why are they so docile? And of course, as we discussed in the previous episode, it's because of their privileged position in empire and they had, you know, all the sort of material benefits. They basically bought off. Mm. Um and Marx also commented on the Irish question, and he basically said, you know, how the British workers or English workers um, hated the Irish, basically. So the Irish came over, undercut them in wages, things like that. And Marx basically said, as long as that national chauvinism exists, as long as they sort of hate the Irish, um, England and the, the UK, you know, British workers will never be free because they said, you know, you can't be a liberated nation if you've harboring these attitudes i think he said some the, the exact quote was something like you can't be a free nation if you're oppressing another nation basically so he basically said that ireland was the key because if ireland became independence that would sort of awake the sort of british worker and sort of disrupt this sort of national chauvinistic mindset um and what kia mcheckney said was like one of the main reasons for supporting scottish independence you know it doesn't you know nothing to do with like oh you know scottish culture or anything like that is like would Scotland leaving the UK um, threaten and disrupt the British imperial military state. Yes, fact, because there would be no nuclear weapons, no military bases, they'd lose their shipbuilding capability, Britain would lose its credibility of the other world, Britain would be far less likely to embark on imperialistic military adventures. It'd be seen as like less hard as well. <laughs> yeah, basically, because yeah. the Scots make up the hard element. Yeah, they are. Um, and that's a massive thing, because... I mean, we'll do another episode on militarism, but you know, Wales provides a key strategic uh, part of the British milit- military industrial complex in providing not just a disproportionate amount of troops, but basically providing a training area for British special forces, um, shitloads of military camps, things like that. Um, and so Wales being independent would drastically weaken the British 
the imperial state. There's just no two ways about it. So that, as I said, is almost a reason in itself to support Welsh independence. Um, they then talk about 1979, you know, the, when Wales voted no in the referendum for the Welsh Assembly. Um, and this is interesting, actually. They say the massive no vote in the referendum was not a verdict against the Labour government's proposals as such. So basically they're saying that it wasn't because Wales hated the idea of self-government. Um, they basically said a saying that the reason people voted no in 1979 it was a repudiation, you know, a rejection of watered-down Welsh nationalism, and but also an affirmation of the Welsh inferiority complex. Um, so basically, I mean, I mean, they also said about like you know people are ra they root this in sort of rational self-interest. They basically said, why would people vote in 1979 for um, an assembly which hadn't been uh, rooted in sort of the, the concerns of the working class? Um, they said the Welsh people are not interested in a pile of bricks with a red dragon fluttering over the head, and nor are they visionaries prepared to support a toothless assembly because it might evolve into a powerful Welsh Parliament. So he basically said that like what was being offered in 1979, obviously you're going to reject it because it's completely pointless because mm -hmm. it was you know it was a talking shop and it was useless. Um, okay, so this is in capital letters, so I like to imagine they were sort of yelling it when they yeah. were saying it. The only Welsh nationalism which is worthy or likely of success is one with a strong social and economic content. We would argue that such a national movement must essentially be built within a Welsh working class and fired by the ideology, politics and policies of socialism. So here we are, you know, this is the essence of the Welsh socialist republican movement and, and it basically is echoing what James Connolly said back in Ireland, you know, um, kind of like the clash between Connolly and the traditional Irish, you know, more romantic Irish republicans. He basically said, well, What's the point of replacing an Irish boss, uh, an English boss, with an Irish boss? Hmm. And he said, if you hoist, you know, if you if you got down the, he said something like, if you took down the Union Jack over Dublin Castle, um, and you hoisted the green flag of Ireland, but you kept the capitalist system, he said Britain would still rule you. Britain would rule you through its financiers, through just the through through capitalism essentially, and basically saying that you know, you can't, you have to engage the working class. Um, and here it is. We always wondered, you know, where in the in the broad history of Wales, where are these radical Welsh people? And here they are. They've written this pamphlet, and it's uh, it's really really good. Um, but even this, so even this stream of Welsh nationalism will be held back by the Welsh colonial mentality and by the British state, which fosters it. You know, this inferiority complex. Therefore, Welsh nationalism must not only be socialist, which by definition includes internationalism. In, um, it must also be thoroughly and unflinchingly anti-British and pro-Welsh. And here's another one. Amongst the other implications, this means we cannot shrink from the issue of royalty. The monarchy is both a product and a source of inequality and unearned privilege. It's a cornerstone of British nationalism and prevailing economic order. It's a weapon wielded with cunning by the English ruling class to inspire loyalty to the British state amongst the subject nations and oppressed classes. And they said, you know, Merthyr and Dowlice in 1938, Abervan in 1967, Carnarvon in 1969. We've witnessed members of the Anglo-German and Greek royal family striving to fulfil the role they're so lavishly paid to perform by the establishment. And this is important because it's true, I think. This anti-monarchist stance is likely to be unpopular, certainly in its early stages, but it's essential if Britishness is to be challenged and Welshness in egalitarianism exalted in its stead. Who do you think... Pop quiz, who do you think would be most opposed to someone who came out and was openly anti-royal in this day and age? I think it would be someone like Owen Smith. 
Uh, yeah, probably like uh, it would be like people the Keystone Labour members. It would be people in the Labour Party who basically would say, I mean, which is which, which when you think about it, and it's just so mind blowing. It's like you know when they kicked off about Corbyn not like bowing properly to the Queen and things like that. And, degrees wasn't enough, and they kicked out. I mean, I think it was a, I, mean, I think it was applied Cymru, um, uh, sp- uh, not the Speaker, you know, like the guy that controls like the Senate, that kicked Leanne Wood out the Senate for calling the Queen Mrs. Windsor rather than, like, Her Majesty. Mm. So these sort of imperial, like, doff, doff your cap attitudes, you know, permeate sort of all um, parties, but it's essential to start challenging I'm, them. Um, so I'm a member of Republic, which is the uh, anti-monarchist uh, kind of uh, group. League. Yeah, the League. The <laughs> we live 300 miles under the British state in a big, you know, yeah. HQ. But I remember um, seeing, I think his name's Graham Smith, the um, the head of it, and he's on TV once with you know on BBC. Oh, we're fair and balanced. Like yeah, here's yeah, like yeah. four people who are monarchists, and he's yeah, no, Graham no, Smith. Like you can't say anything. Yeah, and Chucker and Anuma. Yeah, yeah, yeah we're saying like well, cyborg. Yeah, well, well, everyone loves the Queen, you know. Like people love it, and like yeah, you never had an election of you, but Chucker, uh, shut up. Yeah, shut your Chucker. But um, so the Guardian run ran this article a while back which is quite interesting but what happens when the queen dies like you know in preparation it's just like this this idea that there's going to be a huge kind of crisis in kind yeah. of British identity and it was even saying like people may be asked, asked to go home from work can you, like can you imagine like I would have a day off with yeah I would too pour some on the gr- pour my 40 ounce beer on the ground like yeah I'd uh, just salute my uh, my picture of Princess Diana <laughs> yeah you're in good company now, look up to my memorial plates and my memorial mugs yeah um but it's, it is a tough one because on the one hand, obviously, we want the, you know the monarchy to end. But on the other hand, if there was some form of day off work, yeah, then I'm, yeah. I'm obviously going to completely change my position as long as I can get a day off work. It's just like if there's, you know, as soon as there's a national disaster, if, if there's ever a natural disaster like flooding, mm. first thought, I wonder if I get a day off work. Yeah. I wonder if I can have a lion tomorrow. Um even if your house is like completely decimated yeah. and you, by flooding, and you have I house in a mountain, but like I'm kind of worried. Like it's raining still. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm not um, Yeah, so you, 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 you're right. The attitude towards the monarchy is symptomatic in many ways of the British condition. And, and like when you see them, uh, what was it the other day when she had this speech and like the um, the crown was like ferried over yeah. uh, in a separate car, and it's just like I mean. The thing is, individually... Well, let's not get into it. I wish you uh, reckon that would uh, pull in cash generator. What, the crown? Yeah. <laughs> Feral bit. Feral, like, you could get a few, like, uh, second-hand HD TVs and Jerry Maguire DVDs, can you? Yeah. I mean, you can melt it all down, can you? Yeah. Um, it'd be class, that would, just raiding it. Yeah. Um, all right, next, so those are the first steps. And here we here we go. So this is basically going through the manifesto now. Then, reforming Plaid Cymru. This is interesting, so underlined. We should not be surprised that a large element in Plaid Cymru, especially the leadership, threw themselves wholeheartedly into this wasteful referendum campaign in 1979. After all, the Assembly was a diluted version of their kind of Welsh nationalism, neither socialist nor uncompromisingly anti-British. I can't see why Robert got kicked out of Plaid Cymru. More significantly, the Labour government's proposal fitted in with the strategy of winning self-government by stealth, without real conflict with capitalism and the British state, so gradually that nobody will notice. So this is Plaid Cymru's master plan. Step one, a harmless assembly to which nobody could reasonably object. 
Step two, a lawmaking assembly gained by consensus and the help of non-nationalist assembly members. Step three, Profit. inevitable self-government. All this can come to be, they claimed, without any stand-up fight, any subversive activity, certainly without any violence. Let the Welsh nation perish rather than that against the British state, its forces, institutions and ideology. <laughs> um, what characteristics other than compromise, cowardice, vacillation, was it vacillation, I don't know, Gradu- I don't know what that means, vacillation, gradualism and opportunism, could we expect from a party whose leadership and many of its most influential members are petty bourgeois, nonconformist and pacifist? On industrial struggles, on Trewerin, on the investiture, on the monarchy, on the British occupation of Northern Ireland, on the state conspiracy against the Welsh Language Society, Plaid Cymru has been virtually silent, desperate to avoid challenges, challenging these particularly arrogant or absurd manifestations of British and, British and capitalist power. A new leadership must be built to fight for and become the expression of Applied Cymru which is at every level socialist and consistently anti-British. This struggle is in itself worthwhile. But in the event of the rural right keeping its grip on the purse strings and the internal levers of power, socialists and republicans in Plaid Cymru should have the courage as well as the strength and organisation to leave Plaid Cymru and contribute to the setting up of an independent Welsh Socialist Party. However, now, um, I think I mentioned before, Plaid have a problem. So under Leanne, obviously this is written in the 70s, Leanne, self-proclaimed socialist, moved the party in that direction. And now Corbyn, seen as a socialist, takes a lot of the votes away. And and as we were saying earlier in, in the pamphlet, <laughs> that that's like the kind of, um, you know, grey area of do you want a socialist British state or a socialist Welsh state and it's almost like well what's going to get there first but, uh, but like as we know like parliamentary socialism it's going nowhere under the Labour Party isn't it absolutely but there's also a tension do they r- rightly identify um, with implied within sort of you know the the rural you know or not, or not this is a, a bit of a simplistic characterization, but you know the, this idea that there's a split implied between like more rural right wing people and you know urban socialists and leftists uh you know personified by leanne wood um and it's interesting as well you know that you know i know that there are people in plaid who are you know basically don't like the fact that plaid is now a socialist party under leanne um but what's interesting as well um i mean despite the fact that leanne you know leanne has definitely taken plaid Cymru in clearly in the direct right direction sort of embracing socialism and being more vocal in support of independence you know again i've said this and said this before if Dan wood had somehow been in plaid cymru in charge of plaid cymru like 10 20 years ago who knows where we'd be now and how much better you know stronger plaid cymru would be um but if you go around you know you, you know i live in Whitchurch now you drive during election time you drive around cardiff you drive around Whitchurch. where do you see plaid cymru um Placards. Do you uh, see them in council estates? No. I'm gonna guess Poncana. Yep, Poncana. Rich, bougie Welsh speakers um, who've got a gilded, nice, awesome little life in their third sector jobs uh, or in the Welsh government. They've got no. They've. I mean, I mean, this is something that holds, and it's so obvious. They have no interest in Welsh independence because there's no, um, there's no incentive. Like, what's their incentive? The status quo. Uh, their life now is perfect. You know, there's no urgent need for them to transform society because they've actually, oh, we're doing pretty well, thanks very much. Um, Petty bourgeois class, though. Yeah, exactly. But, I mean, um, and the other interesting thing, I mean, they talk exactly about what's happened. I mean, they predict what's happened. Step one, a harmless assembly to which no one could really reasonably object, which is what happened in 1997, a pointless assembly. Um, 
Step two, a lawmaking assembly. So, you know, you have the legislation, uh, the, the referendum on uh, lawmaking powers again in 2011. Um, and that is how Plaid see it. They kind of see, I mean, this is what I've argued against. I argued against my PhD. This is what I've argued against. Um, and I argue against my book. There's this kind of weird, Whiggish interpretation of history where, like, devolution's inevitably going to sort of creep forward by stealth and we're one day going to wake, wake up, up in yeah. an independent Wales without any sort of conflict. Um, but it's also, I mean, this is, talks about the you know, the debate with implied. And it's, I mean, I think it was in 2003 that they only formally came out and said, um, I think it was, I, I can't remember who that was under, but um, they basically said, oh, if we're going to come out and sort of fight for independence, independence became a formal objective. But even then, they sort of pussyfooted around it and would like, I think I think it was Yanwin Jones, actually, that said, you know, that was talking about... Um, that came out for independence, but then wouldn't talk about it, would say, like, self-government and would really... Because they're kind of trying to... And then, to be fair, and then David Wigley, who t- took over then, really went to great lengths to sort of say, oh, we're not separatists, you know, we're not... You know, and then Adam Price, to be fair to him, basically said, like, I think it was back in 2012, he wrote, like, an article in the Western Mail and was like, we're basically just lying, trying to lie to people, like, oh, avoiding the question of independence because you know, because we think it'll put people off. But he says, you know, the key is to be more radical and to just come out and say, yes, we want independence. And luckily that's what, you know, Leanne Wood has done. And this, particularly after Brexit, there's this sense of urgency. But what, you know, this pamphlet is saying back in the 1970s, that that should have happened back, that should have happened then and now. And, you know, that's 30 years too late almost. All right. Next step, opposing imperialism. Around the globe, nations are fighting for the right for self-determination. They might need our help as we need theirs. We can learn from each other's experience. Yeah. Uh, stronger Welsh links with socially progressive national and regional movements must be forged, especially um, in Europe, where the possibility of breaking up the capitalist nation-states like France and Spain is now opening up. Um, and as Franz Fanon said, far from keeping aloof from other nations, it's national liberation which leads the nation to play its part in the stage of history. It's at the heart of national consciousness that international consciousness lives and grows. Um, and close to home, they really encourage looking at the British occupation of Northern Ireland, um, and say that's and they say we support these forces working for Irish unity and a thirty-two county socialist republic. And I thought there when we edit it, we can put in some republican music, like come out your black and tans, something mm. like that. Um, next step: promoting the Welsh language, um, and this really dovetails with what Hugh basically said in his... Yeah, see uh, our previous uh, episode. See a previous episode. Um, so it's kind of look, looking at where, you know, where the Welsh language kind of is a revolutionary um, force, essentially. is a, um, Welsh has never been the language of a ruling class or its state. Rather, it's been sustained through the centuries of discrimination and adversity by the ordinary people of Wales, by the miners, the quarry workers, the farm workers. Um, it is the crystallisation of Welshness the core of a unique culture that belongs first and foremost to the Welsh working class. And if Di Smith had read that, his head would have exploded. Um, like on scanners. <laughs> um, for that reason alone, it's worthy of protection and preservation. But this is a, the most interesting thing, I think. He said, but more, the Welsh language is a wide chink in the British state's ideological armour. The Welsh language and culture have yet to be entirely taken over and manipulated by the British state. It is an oasis of independent thought and activity in a sea of regimentation, official brainwashing, and Anglo-American dross. Because Welsh has been in imperialism sites, 
as it is today. It also gives us an additional insight into imperialism and its ways. If the Welsh people allow this cornerstone of their identity, whether or not they speak the language, to be shattered, there can be little hope that they will fight for their social and economic dignity and emancipation. That's a really good point, isn't it? I mean, if you can let a language sort of die and get eroded without any fight, what are the chances? What are the chances that you're going to sort of stand up for? Yeah, Wales as a nation, isn't it? Or the, the concept of Wales as a nation. Yeah, I mean, very slim to none. Um, there's a great quote, quote in here from James Connolly. Um, I won't read it in full. But nations which submit to conquest or races which abandon their language in favour of that an oppressor do not do so because of altruistic motives or because of a love of brotherhood of man, but from a slavish and cringing spirit. Um, and they basically say, he says, that spirit cannot exist side by side with a revolutionary idea. Um, okay, so these words should find a deafening echo in modern day Wales. Socialists and patriots here must be firm and uncompromising. Enemies of Welsh, enemies of Wales and of the Welsh working class. We want to see the Welsh language extended and promoted as never before as part of the world's rich tapestry of human variety and achievement. That does not excuse us from the necessity to attack any chauvinistic, introverted and anti-English tendencies in the national movement. Nor does it mean support for those who would divorce Welsh-speaking areas economically and politically from the rest of Wales. Special measures are necessary and practical to support Welsh in these parts of Wales where it still predominates. And in contemporary Wales, that would include taking measures to stop second home ownership, to stop the flow of in-migration, um, which is sort of eroding the Welsh language in its heartlands in Gwynedd. But no steps have been taken because Plaid Cymru won't uh, address that, touch that issue with the barge pole for fear of being um, deemed racist, as if as if it's hard to construct an intellectual argument to show that that's not racist. Um, the battle for the Welsh language must be fought all over Wales. Under capitalism, Wales is the smallest economic unit that could underpin a state commit or scrap that, that's obvious. Um, to those patriots who wish to see a new dawn for the Welsh language, but who spurn socialism, we address these blunt remarks. So, to people who are cultural nationalists who don't care for socialism, the Welsh language has a pathetic future under capitalism. All that can be realistically expected is that it will stumble into extinction early in the next century, having been a battleground between you and a growing number of your non-Welsh-speaking neighbours. Its death pangs will, of course, be soothed by London government's grudging and begrudged sponsorship of the Earth, the nationally steadfast literature and Anglo-American TV programmes in Welsh. Only an economic system which exists to meet the needs and aspirations of society in all their respects, rather than to swell the profits of a privileged few, could conceivably save the Welsh language. If you're not prepared to join the effort to establish such a system to serve the Welsh people, you might as well give up your committees, conferences, I steadfast I, literary events, and your masochistic anguish over the fate of the language, and get on with guiltless employment of the job, status, and comfortable living standards given to some of you by the British state. Damning words there. Burns. Yeah. Absolute burn. A burn throughout the ages. Um, okay, next step, reclaim the land. And this, again, basically talks exactly about what uh, Calvin talks about in his um, prescription for you know rejuvenating the Welsh economy in the previous episodes. Um so basically, they say about the necessity of sort of land ownership. What Calvin said is like, you look at renewables and how important it is for Wales to harness its natural resources, which is it's one of the main things it's got going for us, you know, wind, rain, um, mountains, things like that. But he says it's ridiculous because Wales doesn't own, like the wind farms, Wales doesn't own the energy generating companies, they're owned by like Swedish companies, Denmark, things yeah. like that. And, and so the energy that's generated in Wales, using Wales as natural resources, just goes elsewhere. Um, so what they say, um, 
we insist um, the land belongs to all the people, just as its raw materials and natural resources are the common property of the whole nation. So private ownership of these resources can't be tolerated. Um, they've inflicted immeasurable suffering upon Wales and her people. Um, despoilation, land speculation, the private leasehold system. So, you know, basically they're saying, you know, th I mean, and think about what could be achieved. You know, let's say the Welsh government had some guts and let's say there was an independent Welsh state, uh, independent Welsh socialist state. You could not necessarily collectivise all the land, but if everything is nationalised, you can build social housing on land. You can start, you know, because at the moment, what is it that there's something in the, the Wales bill that specifies energy over particular wattage or whatever can't be controlled what, by Wales. Uh, why um, the uh, Tidal Lagoon is uh, being almost deferred to the UK, isn't it? Isn't yeah, because it goes over a certain thing. But, you know, I always called it the Trident Lagoon, <laughs> which say, oh, that's much better. But you could, um, you know, but you could, the point is you can pursue all these progressive, you know, environmental initiatives, you know, without having to go and ask someone to do it or without having to, you know, without having to give the profits of these, you know, you can invest them back into the country. You know, you can invest them back into the people. You don't have to just, you don't have to see those profits go into sort of carpet bagging parasitic foreign capital. Um, progressive politics. That's the next step. Um, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna wrap up in five minutes. Don't worry, we're gonna go all the way through this. Um, do you want to talk about progressive politics or uh, basically they just say you know in an independent Wales. Prejudice and discrimination on the grounds of race, religion, or sex must be combated without compromise. The inferior position of women in different societies is worth your far more attention than we can afford here, which same as the podcast. Um, so basically they're saying women and I think minorities in Wales, which is true, are doubly oppressed. You know, not only are they, you know, what is it, what is it that Marx says, you know, is that the women is, or Lenin said, women is like a, a slave twice. You know, she's a slave to the capitalist system and then she's also a slave to a man and her family, you know, so there's an awesome article in Jacobin at the moment about radical feminism and Marxist feminism. And what they say is that, you know, basically under capitalism, you know, the man has the function of going out, you know, because it talks about how the nuclear family uh, serves capitalism, basically, and how the nuclear family was established sort of in the Industrial Revolution. And, you know, the man, that's why, you know, people had so many kids, you know, because it helps to sort of, it helps capitalism, essentially. But the man would go out, and produce things, commodities for the capitalist system. And the woman's function is to basically provide for the man, isn't it? Provide for the man and to to raise the little workers of tomorrow in the family. So um, so basically what they're saying in independent Wales, you can take all these progressive steps to ameliorate the the doubly harsh circumstances that are faced by people of colour in Wales, you know, particularly in Cardiff, Newport and Swansea, you know, who are, you know, because we always talk about, you know, Oh, you know, Welsh workers. I mean, Welsh workers are marginalised, but within Wales, you know, people of colour are marginalised again because they, you know, they they face racism and discrimination from the police in the workforce, as the women. Um, so those are the things that would be you could address. Yeah, I essentially, mean, in general, like progressiveness in any state, isn't it? Not specific to Wales. Yeah, no. basically. Um, all right. So towards a revolutionary philosophy. So basically, they're saying you. Lenin, as Lenin said, there can be no revolutionary movement without revolutionary theory. Um, so basically, they're saying that you know, any revolutionary state must be accompanied sort of by an intellectual movement which uses the techniques of Marxism um, 
and which they used to analyse and interpret Welsh history and places Welsh socialism in the context of both Welsh and worldwide history. And they say we should grasp every opportunity to disseminate the results of our research and studies among the Welsh working class. And those of us who are in academic, administrative and professional posts should be ready to be taught by other workers about the nature, methods, lessons, implications of capitalism in its places of production. The workings of capitalism need to be exposed and explained in particular, the way that its values and ideology have become predominant in most industrialised Western nations. Um, so basically saying, you know, this needs to be understood. And the way we can do this are through communist podcasts. Um, um, the only way to do it is... But also through, you know, think, I mean, this is why we need an alternative Welsh media. I mean, it, it, you can't, you know, all these things that, that we're saying, these great ideas that are in the pamphlet, and um, it's all irrelevant if you're not telling people them and, and you but you need vehicles you need mediums for disseminating this message you need to be getting out in the community the neil davidson pamphlet on the radical independence campaign in scotland is phenomenal because he talks about how the radical independence campaign did voter drives how they went into the most deprived parts into the gobbles you know in, into easter house or whatever in glasgow and just energized people and held community meetings talk to people about socialism talk to people about in the benefits of independence so you have to and and Gramsci talks about it as well. He says the first step in sort of basically starting a revolution is to start chipping away and addressing the common sense of society. So in this context, as they say, it basically involves aggressively um, telling people, ag- aggressively attacking Britishness, basically, um, and aggressively attacking capitalism. Um, so that's you know, that's what has to be done, and this. All these things taken together, they say that we believe there will be many people, especially the young, so many of whom face wage slavery, the dull queue or emigration, who agreed broadly who agree broadly with the politics of this pamphlet. And this is something obviously which holds for today. We're in the midst of an economic crisis. Um, you know, there are no jobs. You know, the, the good life is increasingly out of reach for more and more people. The countries, you know, the UK is on the, the brink of fascism. It's on the brink, you know, Wales is on the brink of economic disasters we leave the single market um so these you know people have a vested interest in this and he said these will be people who want to step up the struggle for socialism and for all its best in welsh nationhood there are many thousands more who could be one to our side and this is why they advocate um a new interim organization to bring people of like minds and hearts together the welsh socialist republican movement um so this is going to be the final bit of it so they're on the last two pages people um the welsh socialist republican movement um this will unify the struggle for welsh nationhood and international socialism the welsh socialist republican movement will bring together socialists and left-wing nationalists from the labor party plaid cymru other political group groups and the oft ignored army of people of no party at all such an organisation should aim to increase Welsh national self-confidence, expose the reactionary nature of Britishness and inject a new militancy into socialist and nationalist politics in Wales, identifying and building upon the common ground that exists. We need to get the red, the Soviet uh, thing playing in the background when we say this. To these ends, we suggest that the Welsh Socialist Republican Movement should agitate and educate around the following programme. One, fight to establish a Welsh... Welsh Socialist Republic with industry, land and commerce under the democratic control and ownership of the Welsh people. Promote and restore the Welsh language. Defeat the anti-Welsh bigots whilst opposing all expressions of anti-Englishness. 
Um, defend the trade unions and living standards. Expand trade union democracy and build the Wales TUC into a powerful and autonomous workers' congress. Oppose army recruitment. End British rule in Northern Ireland. Close the British and NATO military bases in Wales. Just you know, which is something that has been ramped up over the last twenty years. Fight all forms of racism. No platform for fascists. Undermine and overthrow the biased English legal system. End the state conspiracies against socialists, trade unionists, Welsh language, and other civil rights campaigners. Only socialism can guarantee full employment for all. Only socialism will use technology to liberate humanity, distributing leisure time evenly and planning for it in advance. Capitalism will continue to use technical innovation to try and boost profits, and in doing so, will increase inequality and chaos. I think I said like one. Then they were all the separate points. That wasn't just like point one, and then there's another one. So they were all they're all number they're one. They're different they? bullet points. All um, yeah, that's right. Um, so this is important, um, and it's something you can debate amongst yourselves, and you can tweet us. Um, the Welsh Socialist Republican Movement should not require its members to forsake membership of their established political parties. Um, so basically, it's saying you know because that. They say if you do that, that's pointless because you can recruit people from Labour, from Plaid, um, and, from, from, and from the Conservative Party, um, and the Communist Party, of course. Therefore, the Welsh, Republican Socialist, Welsh Socialist Republican Movement should not contest elections or declare its support for any political party. Instead, it should organise and participate in rallies and demonstrations, hold education classes and conduct research and publish literature. Most important, it must forge links with socialist and progressive nationalist movements abroad in recognition of the international context of the fight for freedom. And this is important. We don't expect such a movement campaigning on this sort of platform to attract immediate mass support. In all probability, it will be met with hostility and more often, you know, more often than with praise. It will be the butt of much cynicism and little ridicule for media pundits and establishment politicians. But for the first time since the 1950s, the case for left-wing Welsh republicanism will be carried to the people. Though through any adversity that lies ahead, Welsh nationhood and principled socialism will be held aloft by one organisation at least. We must begin building a socialist Welsh Republic and inheritance for future generations of our youth. So end of today's lesson. And the final page. Thus our aim is a Welsh socialist republic. We are inspired by the vision unveiled by Keir Hardy and Dowlais on October 14th, 1911. So Keir Hardy said... The people of Wales fighting to repossess the land of Wales. The working class of Wales taking over the ironworks and the furnaces, the railways and great public works generally, and working them as comrades. Not for the profit of shareholders, but for the benefit of every man, woman and child within your boundaries. That's the kind of nationalism I want to see, and when it arrives we shall see the red dragon emblazoned on the red banner of socialism, the international emblem of the worldwide labour movement. Striving for a socialist... So this is... The pamphlet, not Chiari. Striving for a socialist republic is the biggest direct contribution that the people of Wales can make towards a new international order, socialism, which will be infinitely more humane, democratic, varied and efficient than anything before it. For the first time, the world will belong to all the human race, not to a system created and maintained by ruthless few. Gareth Miles and Robert Griffiths, Cardiff, September 1979. Huge round of applause. But I mean, it's pretty. It makes the hair stand up in the back of your neck a bit when you're reading it. Um, and I mean, <laughs> the sad thing is, I mean, uh, obviously, what happened after this is that you know it did happen, really. And we can okay. So we've gone on a lot today. I'm I'm sorry, but it's important that we finish the pamphlet, and it's important that everyone sort of got a chance to. If you couldn't get around to reading it, this is what it says basically. Um, 
Okay, here's our grand plan. Um, this has been suggested by Richard Martin, so shout out to Richard Martin at the Golai Podcast. Um, Richard basically suggested that we do a live event featuring um, basically a live podcast, but where we would discuss this and the legacy of the Welsh Socialist Republican Movement with Gareth and Robert themselves. Um, so to that end, we've been sort of trying to organise it and it's looking pretty good at the moment. So um, if it came to pass, we hope you would come because I think it would be awesome. It would be a really fun night and it would be an awesome... Um, for those of us who are thinking basically that the time is ripe to... Over to the state. Though. But to rekindle this sort of left-wing move, national movement in Wales, um, it's really important to learn the lessons of you know, what Gareth and Robert both went through in in setting up the Welsh Republican Socialist Movement because of, I mean, they both ended up in the Communist Party and it'd be interesting to see, you know, what, what they think the conditions are today and, and whether or not something like that is feasible. Okay, thank you very much for listening. You've been very patient. Nathan, are there any shout-outs you want to give today? Yeah, uh, shout-outs to our two new patrons, Nick oh. and David. Hey, Nick, uh, hey, David. And to our new uh, investors in our mic equipment, we're now at £150. That's uh, awesome. So 75% funded. Uh, thank you so much, guys. So soon so, we'll be able to have proper mics and we'll be able to get crisp sound. Yeah, and crisps. And crisps. You can hear us eating crisps in a high-quality audio. Yeah, man. So our new, uh, new contributors that Richard, Nick Davis, David, Aaron, and Nick Carter. So, uh, thank you so much, guys. And a shout-out to Kurt Russell. Yeah. And the new Plant the Apes, which uh, was so good, it left me in a haze of depression. Yeah, uh, you said. The, the, I was like, how was the film, Nathan? You're like, oh, it was amazing. The only plus side is sort of made me question my entire existence. So Yeah, I mean, I do anyway, but it's probably more like a forefront. Swings you know? and roundabouts. Yeah. Um, thanks to Oliver James Gabe. Uh, Oliver sent us some awesome designs for um, like a Desolation Radio logo, which is pretty awesome. Um, uh, who else? Thanks to, basically thanks to everyone that keeps sort of uh, promoting us. Uh, thanks to Jasmine Chorley, our friend in Canada that keeps promoting us, which is uh, which is really kind um, to sort of get our worldwide audience. Um, oh yeah, and thanks to my lovely girlfriend for letting us record in our. Oh, in, in big shout out to Joe. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Um, we've sort of banished the bedroom at the moment because you know we've gone over our time limit. Yeah. Um, okay, so peace out, guys. Yeah. See you soon, and hopefully. Uh, yeah, hopefully start spreading the word about a potential live event, basically. Um, live ammunition. You get to see us, you know, in person. Uh, prepared to be disappointed. Prepared to be crushingly disappointed. Um, okay, see you next time. Bye. Right. ta Stay tuned for a very important announcement regarding food poisoning. The celery sticks, the meat and the fish will make you sick. All the food is poison, all the food is poison. The apples, tomatoes, wheat and the corn, all the food is poison. Don't eat the food, it's poison food. All the food is poison, all the food is poison. The onions, the pickles and the melons too, even the pasta and the turkey are contaminated food. Don't eat the food. Chicken. Poison. Barley. Poison. White rice. Baked beans. Duck orange. Poison. Sunflower seeds. Poison. Radicchio. Hummus. Oranges. Poison. Pasta avocado. Poison. Your dad's barbecue brisket. 
Napple, 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 napple. Poison. Try to figure out something else to eat. I'm out of here. <laughs>